I want to go straight to our topic. You have Mizmor Chavzayin in front of you, Perak Chavzayin of Tehillim, uh, which is on page 170 in the Sidur. And uh, just an intro to teaching Tehillim. Whenever we're studying a Perak of Tehillim, we have to address three different issues, always. One issue is, what do the words mean? Pretty straightforward. I have to know what the words mean. The second thing is, what's the structure of the parak? We have to remember that Tehillim are all written in poetic form. They are songs. And they were written to be performed in the Mikdash by the Levi'im with musical accompaniment. So we always have to ask the question, what is the structure, which will then lead us to the third question, which is, what is the message? Now that's with any parak of Tehillim you want to you study whether it's Al Narot Pavel, or whether it's Veshuv Hashem at Shivat Zion, or Sinai El Arim, or Mimamakim, etc. I could go on and be here all morning just listing them. There's 150 Pirkei Tehillim. However, with a large group of Pirkei Tehillim, you have to ask a fourth question. Because there are many Pirkei Tehillim that we say outside of Zogin Tillim. We say them in the context of tefillah, in the context of slichot, in the context of halal, in all sorts of contexts. And the question is, what does that parak have to do with that context? What does that add to it? So, for instance, a week from tomorrow, are we scared yet? A week from tomorrow, we're going to be standing up to hear the shofar. And just before that, we're going to be reciting parak mem zayin, seven times. So, of course, it's worth not only studying that parak and understanding what its message is, but what it has to do with Kiyat Shofar and why it was selected. I want to address the same question when we study Hashem Orivi Yishi. Although there's something odd about Hashem Orivi Yishi in its use in liturgy, why it's in your Sidur, that's um, a twofold strangeness. The first thing about it is that it is a most recent custom, a very recent custom, to say Hashem Orivi Yishi at all as part of davening. It perhaps is 300 years old, if even that. Now, of course, in the outside world, 300 years old is a dinosaur. But in our world, 300 years old is yesterday. 300 years old, ah, no, 18th century, maybe 17th century. There's no record of anybody reciting this parak as part of davening during any particular time of the year until then. It caught like wildfire in many communities. Many Sephardi communities do not say it. The, the students live in Lagoon don't say it. There's whole groups that don't say it at all. But the, the str- second strange thing about it is when it's said. It is said twice a day during what season? Now, but not just Sunday morning with bagels. Elul through Sukkot. And that's what's strange. Because if you think about it, we have many minhagim, including things that we say and things that we do and things that we eat and things that we avoid eating. During parts of this season, Elul and maybe Elul through Yom Kippur, is seen as a penitential season. And so therefore, during the first 10 days of, of Tishrei, we have all sorts of minagim, avoiding pat, no, pat palter, 
and adding things into our tefillah, etc. We have things that we do during the month of Elul. We have shofar every day until Erev Rosh Hashanah. We have, of course, min hagim of the month of Tishrei, like many people have honey all month. Right? And then we have min hagim, of course, of Sukkot, which are festive. There is no single minhag you can point to that goes from Rosh Chodesh Elul until through Sukkot. See if you can find one that, accompany, that, that, that accompanies the entire season from, if you will, penitential to celebratory. From Slichot to Simchat Beit HaShoeva. So that's something else that's odd about this is this parak surpasses and encompasses the entire seasons. So we've got to figure that out why. So in order to do so, let's study a parak of Tehillim together. And along the way, we'll ask some questions. Now, the question I want to pose to you is something I alluded to a couple minutes ago. Every parak of Tehillim was composed to be performed musically. We do not have a masoret about what it sounded like, about what instruments were used, However, in many cases, we do have a Masoret about which group of Levine performed it. Lam Natseach Livne Korach Mizmor. Mizmor Le'asaf. These are all Levitic families. Take a look in Divrei Amim Aleph Perak Vav. These are all Levitic families that later on you read in Divrei Amim Aleph Perak Chafet Chav Gimel, David assigned to be the musicians in the Mikdash. Okay. But we do know that they were performed musically. So I'm going to ask you this question. Along the way, think, and then I'll evoke from you some answers. What musical instruments would you use to accompany this? And don't worry about period instruments. We'll use contemporary instruments. And the other thing is, for the musicians out there, minor or major? Minor or major? Now, I know you're instinctively going to say minor because all Jewish music is minor. Right. Those of us who learned guitar as kids, just to be able to play the kumzis, knew everything was A minor, D minor. It's like, you know, simple. But the reality is it's not like that. So when you think about that, what instruments and what key? Or what tone? All right, let's take a look. Le David. Now, what does Le David mean? By the way, Le David, important to note, is not part of the chapter. It is what, what Chachamim referred to as the Koteret, and what is, in English, the fancy word, if you want to impress people at parties, although I promise you won't get invited back, is superscription. Superscription, right? right write it down and forget it. But um, the koteret le David. We have kotarot that are as short as one word like this. We have kotarot that are a few words, like lamanatzech, means more than David. We have kotarot that are as long as an entire pasuk, like in Nuntet, for instance. A hundred out of the 150 per k tilim in our collection of tilim. The reason I say our collection is because in the re, there are Rishonim who count 147 per ketilim. Because in their collections, Spam and Prakim are actually together, that we have separate. But in our collection of 150 per ketilim, in our Tanachim, 100 out of the 150 have some form of a koteret. As short as a word, as long as, as Tupsukim. But Chachamim never think of those as part of the parak. I know you're looking at me with, how can you say such a thing? Um, I'll give you proof from something that you said yesterday. Towards the, at the end of davening, we, we, we recite a Mishnah from Masachat Tamid. And the Mishnah goes as follows. You didn't know it from Masachat Tamid, but you all know the Mishnah. Hashir, Shalvim, 
Hayomrim Bevet HaMikdash. And then what does it say? Woohoo! Pages have come. Thank you. Wow. 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 Okay. Color. And us. Okay. We are. Great. Okay. Oh, I thought that was applause for the source sheet. Um, They didn't want to miss one more minute. Um, there should be, looks like there's plenty to go around. Okay. Good. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. And in that Mishnah, in Masachat Tamid, what do Chachamim say? How do they refer to the Prakim? Bayomar Yishon Hayomrim. Remember? You can look it up in your city room if you want. They leave out the words of David Mizmor. They leave Alf, Mizmor, Korach. The first six of them, they ignore the opening, the ones that have an opening. Um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday have openings, they ignore them. The only one they mention the opening is, where they mention only the opening is, Mizmor Shalem HaShabbat, and that's because of its own drasha. Chachamim never referred to it that way. If you would come up to somebody, to one of Chachamim and say, we have a minhagi before Berkat Amazon on Shabbat and Yom Tov, they say, Shiramalot, they look at you like you're from another planet. Shiramalot, there's 15 of them, which one? Oh, we say, Beshuv HaShem and Shivat Zion. Okay, that we get. So the Davin is not properly part of the parak, and you can see it the way I laid it out now that we have the page, as kind of separate from the text. That's how Chachamim look at it. However, what does the word L'David mean? What does L'David Mizmor mean? What does Mizmor L'David mean? You were here for Shalosudis yesterday? You sang Mizmor L'David? What does Mizmor L'David mean? What is, what is, so what does L'David mean? Say it again? For David, which means somebody wrote it for David. Right? Which means what? David commissioned him? David said, listen, I want you to write a really cool song. He said, okay, this is dedicated to David. Possibility one. Of David, which means he wrote it. Le David authorship. Now, the reality is that when we see these sort of names, especially the David, there are different approaches depending on the parak. An example of that is Parak Kuf Chafbet, which is Shermalo the David, which is clearly not by David. Now, important note before you start running out or throwing bagels at me, um, Chachamim are clearly a consensus opinion that Tehillim were not all written by David. They're written by a whole collection of people, and there's a machloket about whether David was the final one or Ezra was the final one. But because some people, when they hear this parak is not written by David, they... Okay. But it's important to note, Masachet Baba Batra, Daf Yudalar Amabet, take a look at the sugya and Midrash Shirashirim Rabbah on the Pasuk Tel Talpiot. But here, in this parak, it seems like a very strong argument that here, Le David means written by David. There are too many signals in this parak that point to David's personal life personal career, personal aspirations, and personal disappointments 
that make Le David a, a real mark as written by David. Okay, so let's take a look at it. Now, get our instruments ready. What are we going to select? Keep it in mind. Adonai ori v'yish'i mimi'irach. Adonai ma'oz chayai mimi'efchad. So what is the singer? What is David saying here? Hashem is my light and my salvation. That's a beautiful sentiment. What does mimi'ira literally mean? From whom am I afraid? But what? that's a rhetorical way of saying, I'm not afraid of anybody. Hashem is the strength of my life. That's a parallel. That's how, how shira, how biblical poetry is written. Mimi'efchad. The same idea in parallel. And everybody in the world except for the Malbim agrees that Biblical poetry is written that way, and that th- these are parallel phrases. But notice the statement of confidence. I'm not afraid of anybody because Hashem is with me. Okay, so think about the instruments, but let's get a couple more psukim down before we get there. Now, the word krov here is a little play on words. Krov means when they come close, but it alludes to another word, which is krav, which is a battle. When evil people get close to me, they want to devour me. Now notice, I don't go out and beat them. I watch them trip over themselves and fall. I don't have to do anything. I'm sitting here having shalosudas and these guys come and as they're coming to attack me, they trip over each other and they fall. Right? It's a wild thing. Now, who are these people? They are, they are coming. These are my enemies, my foes. They trip over themselves. And that gets better. And again, what does the word mean? It's a verb. To set up a camp. But this is third person feminine. So confusing, because I always thought my whole life, I thought Tachanez, you set up a camp. If a camp sets itself up, now to set up a camp in Tanakh is a statement of preparing for war. We're setting up a camp, meaning we're preparing to go to war. Thank you. You set up a camp against me, I'm not afraid. Now notice, I'm not afraid doesn't mean that I'm getting ready and making plans, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to win. It means I'm not even doing anything. I'm just sitting there enjoying while I know that nothing's going to happen. So if that camp turns into an actual war, I'm confident. Now at this point, I'm going to ask you, tell me what instruments you'd use for this. Trumpet. By the way, when I teach this year, that's always the first one that comes out, and I agree. Trumpet. I would say sousaphone, but not, not many people know what it is. All right? What else? What other instruments might you use? A big bass drum, maybe. I don't know. Okay, and what, what major or minor is this thing? This is marching, right? King Charles III. This is powerful. This is confident. There's nobody's. I'm not afraid of anybody. Keep that in mind. And our orchestra's all set up here with trumpets, trombones, flugelhorns. We got the whole brass section going. We're doing everything in major, upbeat, big drums. Put some, put some cannons in the middle. All right? Eight, what was your 18, 20? Yeah. Do we know a 
We have no idea. Although we're going we're gonna to try to isolate, um, isolate it, and I think you'll find that it either reflects a late-life re reflection back or else composed in two parts or two stages. Okay, good. Good question. Now, you have to remember, David is also in the Middle East. We forget, we're from the Middle East. Okay, so remember, when you come and say, I, I want one thing, what you really mean is I want a bunch of things. You're bargaining. It's in the shuk. Watch. How would you translate achat sha'alti? Say what? I asked for one. I'm going to add one word to it, which, sets, which it fits the tone of this. Because I'm confident of A, and I'm confident of B, and I'm confident of C. There's only one thing I ask. There's just one thing I ask. Because everything else I've got. I'm confident my enemies are going to fall. I'm confident that no war can defeat me. I'm so confident that I'm not even preparing for war. I'm sitting and watching as they stumble over each other. It's great. So I only have one thing to ask. Now, by the way, this pasuk is a beautiful pasuk. I highlighted it on the page. It is a pasuk that we have a fast song for and a slow song for and other songs for. It's great. We say shifty 14 times ago. Woo! We have a great fun time with it. And yet, and yet, there's something a little bit off in this pasuk if you look at it in the context. There's one thing I ask God. I'm going to say only one thing I ask for God. That's what I request. What's the one thing I want? So again, there's not just one thing. I want to sit in the house of Hashem my whole life. This, by the way, is a clear David pointer. Because the one thing David was denied was building the Mikdash. But he's not done with that. <clears throat> I want to gaze at the beauty of Hashem. And levaker is a tricky word. So, a small tangent to explain it. What does levaker mean? So think about how strange that is. I want to sit there forever and also visit. It's a little weird. You'd go the opposite way. I want to visit and then not leave. That's how I feel every time I come here. I don't want to go back. But to say I want to be there forever and also visit is a little strange. So it's important to note that Hebrew is a living language. And the meaning of words in Tanakh is not necessarily the same meaning as words in Rabbinic Hebrew. Chachamim say this in Masachat Abu Dazarah, Lashon Torah Lachud, Lashon Chachamim Lachud. Rabbinic Hebrew is not the same as Medieval Hebrew, and Medieval Hebrew is not the same as Modern Hebrew, and I could give you a bunch of examples, but I want to stay on the top. The word Levaker in Rabbinic Hebrew and in Modern Hebrew means to visit. Bikur Cholim. Levaker in Tanakh means something different. It means to investigate. It's used, for instance, in Vayikra Perak Yotet. We're talking about the Shivcha Harufad, Bikoret Tihiyat. Chachamim even utilized the word in that meaning when they talk about a korban meaning Bikur Dalad Yamim. It has to be investigated and checked. The Ibn Ezra, in his commentary on Sefer Breshit, says that the reason that morning, not dawn, which is Shachar, because it's black, shachor, but rather morning is called boker, as it's the first time of day that you can investigate things clearly. All right, levaker. And so, levaker be'echalo seems to mean I'd like to sit and be able to think clearly about God. David wants to sit in the mikdash and just sit there and soak up godliness 
And, in, and that's the one thing I've asked of God. Okay? Now, he continues, And the key here is unclear. Key almost never means because in Tanakh. Here it means rather or perhaps because, perhaps indeed, He hides me in his sukkah on a bad day. Now, by the way, this is a little strange because according to this, David doesn't have bad days. What it means that, seems to mean is that if there is a day where there's a threat, God protects me. And where does he protect me? He hides me in his sukkah. A little unclear what that means, and it seems to be a metaphor. He hides me in some protective place. And by the way, there are those who point to this pasuk as being the reason we say this all the way through Sukkot. I don't think that's the reason, but that's what they point to. Now this one's even trickier. Because if you recall, David brought the Aron from Kiryat Yarim, Bavabugosh, to Yerushalayim. Of course, was not was denied the opportunity to build the Mikdash, but he set up a tent. And the Aron was in the tent. He put a Mizbeach in front of it. And our, our inclination is to think that that's what the Ohel that he's referring to. But I don't think so. I think the Ohel here, again, is metaphoric. Because David is not attacked when he's in Yerushalayim. Once David's in Yerushalayim, there's no attack on the city, except when he has to run away from his own son. So the Ohel and the Sukkah here seem to be metaphoric of saying, God enfolds me and protects me. And not only that, but B'tsur Yeromimani. B'tsur is an, an outcropping on the top of a hill. B'tsur means a rock. B'tsur here means a, like a, cropping of rocks where you can be lifted up. You can go up, climb up there, and you're safe from your enemies. A, they can't see you, and B, they can't get up there. And that, of course, takes us to the story of David and Shaul, when David is able to be safe from Shaul in Maoz Hatzur. And now, And now my head is lifted up. And it's important to know, because we're going to get to this in the second half, the motif in Tanakh of looking down at someone is always a statement of victory, and being down, being looked down upon is a statement of defeat. Whether it's literally that way or the image is that way, that's the, that's the, the, the way the Tanakh describes it. So God lifts up my head above my enemies who are around me, meaning I look down on them. And meantime, I'm not fighting because they're tripping over each other. So what am I doing? What do I do? I come into his tent. Now, this is likely the tent we're talking about because I bring korbanot there and they are called which some people will point to here as being the Rosh Hashanah connection, possibly. Not likely because seems to mean korbanot that are brought with a lot of sound, meaning very festive. Okay, are we all comfortable with saying this is trumpets and major till now? This is confident and this is um, successful and maybe even a little bit too much? Okay, so you saw that I put a line of some musical notes between them. Okay. The para continues, and this is, by the way, I'll share with you as a teacher that 
that one of the difficulties in teaching Tehillim is, depending on the parak, is Tehillim that are, teach Lamed Zion, it's actually easy. Lamed Zion is a parak nobody knows. Nobody knows it because we don't, it's not part of our davening. I don't mean nobody knows it, but it's not familiar to us. You start teaching this and people are saying the words with you because we all know it. That makes it more difficult because we all know it so well, we don't stop to think what we don't know. And when we're reciting it at lightning speed, which is what we do in Domini, right? We say, and we don't notice that there's been this dramatic change. So that's why we do a shiur. It doesn't mean we just have to slow down in shorts. It means this, and maybe we should, but that that's why we take time to learn it and look at it and see what it's, what's going on. And hopefully when you say it this evening, at tomorrow morning, there'll be a new light there. Okay. Shema Adonai Koli. Uh, just starting with those three words. Just starting with the first word. What has changed? Hear my voice, Hashem. What? What about the confidence? Yeah, yeah. So what do you got? What does it mean when somebody says Shema Hashem Koli? What? Needing. What else? Not so confident. Asking. Well, or asking for God to hear me, which means I don't think God is hearing me. I don't, I don't try to get your attention if you're all listening to me. Saying Shema Hashem Koli means I think you're not listening to me. Please listen to me. We pled it last night, Shema Koleinu. We'll continue doing that for the next couple of weeks. That means we, we're afraid God's not listening. What happened here? And it gets better or worse, but it gets stronger. Ekra, v'choneni v'aneni. Choneni, have compassion on me. Aneni, answer me. And as we say in Japanese, vasa geshendo. You didn't know I spoke Japanese, right? I thought it was Chinese. What? I always get confused. What happened here? That this, per- this person is suddenly so confident. I don't need to worry about my enemies, and I bring korbanot, and I sing, and I dance, and all great. And the only one for you, and suddenly, where are you, God? Please help me. He, he alluded to that at the beginning when he says he's, he's aware, he's conscious of the fact that Grobelai, Boreyam, Lechos, sorry. Yeah, I, he knows that already. That may be his default position. That may be his default thing. He's very grateful and he's very conscious of Hashem's helping. Right. But his default position is, I got sorrows. Could be. And that continues here why he says, Shema Hashem Good. So what do you do with the instruments now? Uh, violin. Okay. So you're going to put the trumpets down, pick up a violin. I'm with you. What about the music? It goes minor. It goes quieter. And it's gone from, um, I don't know, uh, Lechom Aminim Uptune, right? It's suddenly it's very slow and quiet and plaintive, and it's a very different thing. That's why I put the notes in there. By the way, it gets stronger. Now, you may be right, but we still have a, a fundamental shift in what's going on. And by the way, important to note, Pirkei for the most part, are singular in that way. They're not monotonal, but they're singular in that Hashem Ro'ilo Achsar we would have with a quiet classical guitar. Hashem Ha'aretzim Lo'ah, we said this morning as the means more, would definitely be trumpets. So Sharim HaShechem, it's all one thing. And it doesn't change. It changes a little bit, there's a development, but not so radical. So we've got to figure out what's going on. Yeah? Is there anything to the fact that the turning point seems to be when 
Um, Right. As soon as we're bringing the carbon, all of a sudden we're saying Shema Hashem, which one of the things. I would love that if it stopped here. I would love that. That'd be great. If right after bringing the carbon, he said Shema Hashem Koli, and then Selah, we'd be great. The problem is what happens next. Okay, but not. That's a great idea. You, you understand what he's saying? Is that maybe that proximity of the korban means that I suddenly realize I've got to connect with the Kodesh Baruch That's great. But let's keep see what's going on because it gets worse. It gets better, but it gets worse, meaning it, it devolves. My heart told me that I should seek out you. Or in English, I should seek you out. So I'm going to do that. Meaning, my heart was speaking to me and it said, find God. Which means I'm in trouble. And so, okay, I'm going to try to find you. I'm going to try to look for you. By the way, if I'm seeking your face, what does that tell me? That you have turned your face away. And now I have to find you. Years ago, I remember being at a friend's house and his mom, secular woman, had a, uh, a little post-it on her refrigerator. This is when they first started having refrigerators, a long time ago. <laughs> and she had a note on it that said, if it seems that God is far away, guess who moved? What deep monster that is. That's what he's saying. Okay, I, I've got to seek you out. This is not the same tone as a few psukim ago. Don't turn your face away from me, please. Tat is short for tate. Don't turn away in anger from me. And by the way, for the first time, he refers to himself as avdecha, your servant. Ezrati hayita. You were the one who helped me. Don't abandon me and don't leave me. You are the God of my salvation. Now notice that he's using Yishi again as he did in the beginning, but in the beginning it was a statement of fact, and here it's part of his argument, please come back. You're the one who's supposed to save me. And it gets stronger. The heartstrings get pulled here. Ki avivi mi azavuni. Now, whether that's literal and it's being stated when David has handed his parents over to Melech Moab and never sees them again, evidently, or whether it's just metaphorically the idea of everybody around me has left me, all my support system is gone, God will bring me in, is not a statement of fact, it's a prayer. Please, God, I'm all alone, I got nobody, please bring me in. Then he says, Horeni Adonai Darkecha. Hashem, show me your way. Show me your way. Why? Clearly, I'm off the path. And I need to be brought back to the path, which is going to bring me back to you, and watch his argument. Lead me in the straight path. And then his argument is, is interesting. What was Moshe's argument when Hashem said, I'm going to destroy all of Am Yisrael because of the ego? What was Moshe's argument? If, if you're not familiar, we're going to hear it. A week from Wednesday. What? Say it again. There we go. The Egyptians are going to say, oh, God took him out in the desert, and then he couldn't defeat the kings of God. It's going to be a chilul Hashem. Two arguments are the Brit, with Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, Israel is mentioned there, and the chilul Hashem. Watch what he says. He makes that in a micro sense. Laman Shorirai. 
Now, shorai can be read in three different ways, all lead to the same thing. Shorai could mean, mean what? Shorai. The people who are singing at me. Nah, 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 right? But obviously much more powerful. No, 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 right? But it's the people who are singing at me, singing in the sense of jeering at me. What's another possibility is shorai is a form of sorai, my enemies. And shorai may also be related to the word ashurenu, which we find in the song of Bilam, the poetry of Bilam, which means to look down from a high wall. Banot ale shur in, in the bracha de Yosef. So, but they're all the same thing. The people who are looking down at me, the people who are laughing at me, the people, my enemies, the people who are singing at me, it, I want you to come back to me, show me the proper way, bring me back, so they can't do that. Now, the argument may even be more sophisticated than that. It may be, I am your king. I am the one who represents you. I'm the one who carries the banner, and it's a chilul Hashem that these enemies are looking down at me. So for that sake, or it might be personal. Please save me so people are making fun of me and treating me like... Like dirt, yeah. Ooh, it could be. It could be. Let's when we get to the end. Let's try to figure out a, a time frame for these, and we won't be able to nail down. We could make suggestions. Correct. Very good. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the parak, he said, "When enemies come to devour me, right, and you, they stumble and fall." The imagery, and we're not necessarily seeing cannibalism here, but the imagery of the enemy devouring me is the most graphic, um, actually one of them, not exactly, but second most graphic image used in Tanakh for utter defeat. Doesn't mean they're actually eating me, but... And here, the word nefesh, remember I mentioned earlier that Hebrew and Tanakh and Hebrew and Chazal and Hebrew and medieval times and Hebrew today are not necessarily used, words are not used, used the same way. What does nefesh mean? A soul. soul, right, except in Tanakh, not, doesn't mean a soul. Is there a soul in Tanakh? Maybe, but nefesh does not mean a soul. What does nefesh mean in Tanakh? Life, Adam hu nefesh, a person, nefesh ki And in some places in Tanakh, nefesh means throat. Mm-hmm. Throat. The waters have come up my throat. Don't let me go into the gullet of my enemies. Again, this imagery of them eating me. And what's his what's his argument for innocence here? Eifeach is a difficult word until we use a concordance and take a look at it in Mishlei and see it refers to testimony or witnesses. Yifei Hamas means lying witnesses, parallel to Edei Sheker. And this again is a straight David connection because what does David say to Shaul? Remember the episode in the cave where David cuts the corner of Shaul's garment and then Shaul leaves and David calls to him from a distance and then David says to him that there are people who are lying who are telling you that I'm trying to kill you. You could see I'm not. And they are cursed before God, etc. David is a victim of false witnesses in the Shaul scenarios, in the Shaul cycle. And so 
that may be indeed what he's complaining about here. Before we get to the last two psukim, I'd like to address what you brought up earlier about time frame. What would conceivably be the time frame of these last psukim? I've been abandoned, I'm all alone, I'm being chased, uh, my enemies want to devour me. So we can really only point to one particular period in David's life and then a possible second. But I'm not enamored with the second choice. The first one is during the years when David is on the run from Shaul. Because David is very, is very much isolated. And even sometimes his small, loyal band of renegades, which is who joins him, who are on the run, they're not necessarily with him. And they're not necessarily in on his plans. And sometimes he has to yell them down. They all want to kill Shaul. He says, you can't do that. So David is very much alone. And he's being chased. And he's being threatened. And he feels very much isolated. You could make the argument that this refers to David running away from Avshalom, when Avshalom comes to take the city. Uh, you could make that argument, but it's very hard to argue everybody's abandoned me when he has a very strong, loyal group that stays with him and an army that fights with him that ultimately uh, defeats and kills Avshalom and go out, etc. So I, I'd rather put that in that period. When would you then put the first period? So there I think the Batsheva story plays a role because how did the Batsheva story happen? How did, how did David even see Batsheva that all that terrible stuff happened from there? He was home. Where was, where was Batsheva's husband? So the first thing that's wrong in that story is why isn't David on the battlefront? It's the first time we hear about David not leading the troops in the battle, but sitting back and directing them from a distance. And everything falls apart from there. And, and so it, it's possible that that's right before this. It could be that period of, yeah, my enemies, they fall. Maybe. I don't know. But now we get to the penultimate pasuk. And the penultimate pasuk is a, is a mystery because it's an incomplete pasuk. What? Because what does it mean? If it were not for the fact that I had full faith that God would eventually bring me to Eretz HaChayim, which in David's lexicon is, is Eretz Israel, that's the way he uses it. If it were not for that, then he leads off the rest. I would have given up hope. I would have fallen on my sword. He doesn't say that. And this is not uncommon in Tanakh when something is going to be uttered that is so horrific that the substitute is to leave it blank. It is used most commonly in Tanakh in oaths. When a person says, I'm taking an oath not to do something, the way they say it is, I swear, and they use Hashem's name in one form or another, if I do X. What does if I do X mean? So it means I'm not going to do X. But what it means is, ultimately, if I do X, the most terrible thing should happen to me. But I'm not going to say it. And so that seems to be what's happening here. He's saying, if it were not for the fact that I had faith in Hashem, that he would ultimately bring me back, use your imagination. And the last pasuk is yet a bit strange. We all know it, and some of us, perhaps will show our age, remember one of the earliest... Uh, Jewish rock songs. Kabbalah Hashem. Rabbi Sons, I think. Right? 
not such a rock song, but it's fun. All right. Now, by the way, notice that everything till now has been autobiographical. This is what happens to me. This is how I feel. My heart said to me, I'm seeking you out. It's a dialogue between David and God. And then suddenly, it's like a directive to the audience. It's in the imperative. You should pray or you should hope. Here it probably means pray. It says it twice. With the inter, intermezzo here of what's going on here? So I'd like to make the following suggestion to explain this parak. First of all, if you turn the page, you could see we've gone through the parak, we've gone through the words. We know what the words mean. The structure of this parak is actually very straightforward. It is exactly two halves, and you could see if you count the words, you'll end up with almost exactly the same amount of words in each half. And the first half ends with the trumpets of the Korbanot, and then Shema Hashem Koli is the second half. And Kaveh Hashem really is the binder that brings the whole parak together. So I'd like to suggest in bringing this all together to answer both the third and fourth question. What's the message of this, and what's its propriety for the liturgy, the way we use it, and specifically the oddity of using it from Rosh Chodesh Elul all the way through Hoshana Rabbah, or Shishmi Yatzer. <clears throat> the first half of this parak describes somebody who is at the pinnacle of things. Somebody who has achieved tremendous success to the point where they wake up in the morning and they don't have to check the paper because they know whatever they invested in the day before is up. And they check it just to, you know, have that good feeling. They're not concerned. When they hear that there is a plague going around, they're not concerned because it's not going to affect me. And their confidence is confirmed when indeed they're not affected. Earlier, I spoke about David being confident, and I alluded to the fact that he's maybe a little too confident. I think if you listen to the first half, there is really overweening confidence. It's not just that I know Hashem is with me, Baruch HaGever Sheiftach Badunai, Vayadunai Miftacho, and I'm going to go into battle, and I know Hashem is going to help me win. It's I can just sit back and He takes care of my enemies for me. Somebody in a situation like that could easily fall into the trap. I know people like this. You may know people like this. Of thinking, not I don't believe in God, but I don't really need God on a daily basis because I've already got my back pocket. It's already there. God's on my side, to paraphrase Bob Dylan. And so, of course, I'll say Baruch Hashem. Of course, I'll say Baruch HaTagomel. Of course, I'll give some stock, etc. But... On a daily basis, okay, I'll come to Shulam, but on a daily basis, I don't want to reach out to God and say, thank you for everything you've given me, and please continue. Because it's already mine. And then you look at the other extreme. I've been teaching uh, in schools for close to 40 years. And what I've seen happen over the course of the last two and a half years or so, is devastating. And I will tell you that the Jewish schools have done way better than the public schools. 
But the sense of hopelessness, the sense of isolation, the sense of a dark tunnel with no light at the end, which has enveloped so many of our teenagers in the last couple of years, I'm not here to critique policy. I'm just pointing it out a reality. It's something that we are going to be dealing with for a generation. I now have seniors who had half of ninth grade. That's it. We now have in, t- taking in ninth graders into school who didn't have a real middle school experience. And it's devastating. And thank God we have done a great job throughout the Jewish community of providing all sorts of other avenues for kids to have with camp and with, with um, youth organizations and Shabbos and family and everything else. But you know what's going on in the outside world? It's scary. And there are people out there, and we may know people like this, and we may have sometimes felt this way in our lives, where we felt that it was so dark, it was so distant, we were so isolated that there's no point in calling out because there's nobody there who's going to listen. If putting up against the wall and say, sure, I believe in God, but he's not listening to me. People feel like that. And this parak is a united parak, a unified parak that describes both extremes from on a biographical perspective, which is why it's successful. Because it's one thing to give Musser, it's another thing to talk about yourself and people can identify with it. I was on top of the world, doing great. Hey, Ma, how you doing? I was devastated. I was at the bottom. That's why so often at our NCSY Shabbatonim, and at a camp, we bring motivational speakers. They don't inspire, they tell. They tell their own story, not inspires. Very powerful. That's what David's doing here. He's saying you can be on top, so on top that you think, I don't need to reach out to Hashem on a daily basis. I'll say, I'll say the words, but I don't really need to really reach out. Because tomorrow's guaranteed. And then, of course, there's the opposite, which is feeling so isolated that there's nobody there. The last pasuk is the salvation of the whole thing. To the first person who feels like everything's great, kavel Hashem, you better pray to Hashem. You ought to realize where it all comes from, realize how quickly it can be taken away, but more critically, realize that the one anchor in your life, the one central thing that you can rely on is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Pray to Hashem, connect to Hashem. And to the person who feels isolated, who feels hopeless, who feels like there's absolutely no way it's going to get better, chazak v'yamitz libecha, strengthen yourself, v'kavel Hashem. And it's as if David is saying, you who are flying high, and you who are sitting low, I want you guys to stand together in Shul and David. And I want to hear you both crying. The month of Elul is a month that if we were to take it seriously, and we all take it seriously to one measure or another, but if we were to take it to its ultimate seriousness, it would devastate us. To look back at the year. Who can look back at the past year and say, I'm good with God, everything's fine. Nobody's honest. We're humans, we make mistakes. It could be devastating. The answer is Kabbalah Hashem.
And then comes Sukkot. We are sitting there with all the bounty of the year, the biggest celebration of the year, bar none, the one that's defined as Man Simchatenu, and the one where we're commanded to bring all of the bounty of the year and surround ourselves with it. So this parak, which brings together the extremes of experience and unifies them by saying, the one anchor, the one central feature in our lives that keeps us all together and keeps ourselves internally together is our dependence on Hashem and our awareness of a constant dependence on Hashem and an assurance that that dependence is, is, is responded to. And therefore, this is the parak that became the minhag to recite through the entire season of potential distance and, of course, actualized celebration. I want to wish you all a tremendous rejoicing.